Okay, so we have Nehemiah 11, 12, and 13 this evening. That's really something. Um, if you don't mind, I'm going to defer our review to the end of this, assuming that we have time to get to it, um, trusting that your memory is, is very fresh and very good and that you've uh, committed these things to heart and that not only the words of this, but the lessons that we're trying to see as we're being shown. Um, Romans 15 says that whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. This, is, this was written for us. And these, these things are for our learning. Um, and uh, 1 Corinthians 10 says the same thing. So let's, uh, let's open our Bibles and let's see what's being said um, in, in this book. Just as a quick catch-up, we, we're just coming off the tail of um, a very impressive scene. First of all, you have people who are um, hearing God's Word on a daily basis and, and feasting on it um, and rejoicing in it. Um, and people who are convicted by the Word of God. They see what it says. They see that their lives uh, need to be shaped in these ways. And they are so serious about doing God's Word that they've signed this document. They're committed now. Um, and their intent is to, is to carry this out. We finish chapter 10 with this statement. And their, um, their affirmation that they will not neglect the house of their God. <clears throat> So now we come to chapter 11, and what we see is a, a, a sparsely populated city. Um, you'll see that not, not many people were living in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is fit for um, residency. So, in verse 1, um, they've come up with a way to have uh, Jerusalem to be populated. Now, the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, but the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine-tenths remained in the other cities. And the people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. I'm going to remind you uh, right at this point of something that was uh, said in one, one of Leland's lessons. I want to say this was a couple weeks ago. He was teaching us about Psalm 110 and how it pictures the Messiah in his various ways. But there's something in there that's actually not about the Messiah at all, but about his people. And what it says in Psalm 110 is this. <clears throat> Your people will volunteer freely... In the day of your power, in holy array, from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. What is being said here? Your people will volunteer freely. They're going to, he said, the NIV says, they will be willing. And that's what actually you see here in the beginning of this. They see the appeal and the draw of living in the city of God. And it says they volunteered. I'm not sure exactly how that worked out with also, also with the casting of lots. But what you see is people who are willing. 
But it makes me think of these, the Psalm 110 and the New Covenant times where, for sure, your name doesn't get drawn in a lot to be part of the holy city and to live there. Um, it is absolutely on the basis of our uh, free will desire to follow the Lord and to be part of his uh, city. Um, and that's what's being said. So Jesus is in Zion. That's Jerusalem. He's ruling in the midst of his enemies. And at that time, it says, all of you and me, they're, um, they're, these will be the ones who volunteer freely uh, to come and live in the city of God. And that's what Hebrews says that we have done. We've come to the city of God. Hebrews 12, verse 22. says, you haven't come to any of the mountains of old that were very significant. It says, instead, you've come to Mount Zion, Jerusalem. You've come to that. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, and to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God and to Jesus. Your people will be volunteers in the day of your power. And that... Um, Puts us in company with these ones who wanted to be, uh, you know, live in the city of God. Very significant thing. In verse 3. Now, these are the heads of the provinces who lived in Jerusalem. But in the cities of Judah, listen to this. Each lived on his own property in their cities. The Levites, the priests. Um, or the Israelites, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants. And the descendants of Solomon's servants. It says here, each lived on his own property in their cities. To me, I see a, another connection with uh, New, Testament, um, New Testament things. Because in Jeremiah 31, you read something and it sounds like, it sounds like it's describing the time of Nehemiah. But if, you read if you're reading closely... <laughs> And, and if you, let's recall just for a minute, what is Jeremiah 31? Oh, well, that's telling about the new covenant. It's telling about new covenant things. And um, what you see there in verse 31, he makes it very plain that he's making a new covenant. It's not like the old one, and he's going to dwell with his people. As part of picturing that, he says in verse 16 and 17, um, Thus says the Lord, restrain your voice from weeping. And your eyes from tears. For your work shall be rewarded, declares the Lord. And they shall return from the land of the enemy. Well, this sounds to me um, like what, we've, what we're seeing so far. Verse 17. And there is hope for your future, declares the Lord. And your children shall return to their own territory. What I see here is a picture of New, Te New Testament, New Covenant things. That's what Jeremiah 31 is centered on. And yes, there's some overlap with um, the times of old. And we've said already, Nehemiah is showing us this picture of people who are part of um, God's plan. And at that time, it pictures what we are now. The real thing shown, us, shown to us before in the book of Nehemiah in pictures. But if we put together uh, these statements here with the understanding that we we're looking toward, always looking toward the new covenant, um, then what we're, we'll, we'll know that what we're intended to see is that the return of the remnant coming back to the land, living in the land and dwelling in the land, uh, points to new covenant times.
We will make some um, quicker progress over the next few verses. What you see just in summary in verses uh, 3 through down through verse 35 is um, the names of the leaders of the people. And, but more than that, uh, I think more significantly the, than that, you see the way in which they individually served. And so their, their names are recorded, but their work is also recorded. Does this sound like what we've been saying from before? Well, it is. The Lord records it and the Lord uh, rewards it, as we've said before. So we'll see these names. We'll see the ways in which they served. We see priests. We see Levites. We see temple servants in verse 3. We see in verse 9, uh, overseers and the one who is second in command of the city. Um, you see in verse 12, how about this? The ones who had performed the work of the temple. And their names are recorded and they are noted for their good work. And uh, in verse 16 and, and in that vicinity, the ones who are in charge of the outside work. And leaders of prayer, verse 17. Leaders of singing, verse 22. And the ones who kept watch at the gates, in verse 19. Why are we, what are we emphasizing here? We, like they, have the great privilege, a great privilege of dwelling in the city of God. And what that means is that there's some responsibility. Privilege and responsibility go hand in hand. The privilege to put our hands to the work of God. Let's be faithful like they were to put our hands uh, to the good work. We said in verse 3, that there was this statement about living on their own properties. Look in verse 20. There's something um, said there. It's very similar, but slightly different. Um, so there are the ones who've been in Jerusalem. But there are the ones, the rest of Israel, it says in verse 20, of the priests of the Levites, were all in the cities of Judah, each on his own inheritance. What are we saying here? And what do we need to be looking for? What is the new covenant? Um, application to having an inheritance in the holy city. <clears throat> um, well, it's, it's 1, Peter 4, uh, 1 Peter 1, verse 4, um, among other places. God has caused us to in, obtain um, an inheritance. An inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Um, and so we see, we continue to see pictures and something that shows us ahead of time what we will be experiencing. So you, Northfield, every one of you individually are the Israel of God and he will cause each of you to live on your inheritance. Uh, a property, you might say, reserved for you. Not a, we're not saying a mansion that's set aside just for our pleasure. It's a place in God's presence. Um, and this is something that we rejoice in. As you come down through verses 23 through 25, you see two things here. You see a commandment and you see careful compliance. It seems a little bit unusual to read about um, the, the worship that was going on and the way that was carried out 
in connection with commands that would come from a, a foreign king. But um, notice in verse 23, for there was a commandment from the king concerning them. That is, I uh, really should read verse 22. The overseers of the Levites in Jerusalem was Uzai, the son of Bani, the son of Heshabiah, the son of Mataniah, the son of Micah, the son of Asaph, who were the singers for the service of the house of God. Now, verse 23, for there was a commandment from the king concerning them and a firm regulation for the song leaders day by day. And Pethahiah, the son of Meshezabel, of the sons of Zerah, the son of Judah, was the king's representative in all matters concerning the people. So you have what here is a commandment specifically from the king of Assyria and on the part of the people, a careful uh, compliance. And um, what I see there is the principle that we see in a couple different places in the New Testament, Romans, here in 1 Peter 2, submit yourself. For the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do what is right. That's the purpose um, that God has given the government. And our uh, part in this is to submit um, to what they um, command. That essentially covers what we uh, need to say from chapter 11. Um, And we will quickly come to chapter 12. Um, A wise man once said, let me explain. No, there's too much. Let me sum up. And that's what we'll have to do to a certain extent in chapter 12. Um, In verses 1 through 26, what we see is that the, the priests and the Levites, the priesthood, has been established again. And this is extremely um, important. This is um, very, very much key to them settling in the land again. The importance of the priesthood cannot be overemphasized. Let's, let's notice um, what the people missed by all, that time in captivity away and not having the worship um, in, in the way it needed to be and not having the priesthood functioning in the way God intended the priesthood to function. So let's look at it in the reverse in terms of understanding how important it is to have this priesthood reestablished. The worship um, cannot be what it needs to be. God had intended Aaron's, Aaron and his sons and then their descendants to be, in Exodus 40 verse 15 says, a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. It was performing a crucial function in uh, the worship. To be a little bit more specific, especially um, thinking in terms of the sacrifices that would be taking place at the temple. Without the priesthood, the sacrifices cannot be made and they'll be neglected. And the, the, the result of that is that there cannot be any atonement. And this causes me to think of the great importance and the function of our high priest and what he does um, on our behalf. Um, As as a reminder of that, I'm I'm reading from Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 15. 
Because 1 Peter says we are a priesthood. What about this priesthood? Verse 15 of Hebrews 13. Through him then let us continually offer up the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. This is to be a perpetual, continual, persistent thing throughout our generations. And do not neglect doing good and sharing. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. There's the satisfaction on God's part that is, is the purpose of those sacrifices. And we're carrying those out um, as, a, as the priesthood of the New Testament, uh, the New Testament times. This sometimes can be overlooked in terms of the roles of the priest. The, ro- the priests were intended to be teachers of God's law. And you'll remember that in Malachi, they were, um, let's say, rebuked because they fell short of this. What were the priests doing? They were misleading the people and um, going their own way in a, a number of ways. But what Malachi 2 verse 7 says is that the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge. That's harking, harking back to Leviticus chapter 10. The lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is a messenger of the Lord of hosts. And so the people are, to say they're at a great disadvantage is actually understating it. When the people are without knowledge, what happens? You know. He says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And to have the priesthood not functioning and serving its part for all that time uh, was, was to their um, uh, great trouble. And now, how wonderful it is to see that the, the priesthood has been reestablished. And these men, named here, had the great honor of serving the people and being a forerunner of the Messiah, our, our high priest. Um, and so that's what we are seeing there in Nehemiah 12, uh, there in the first section of that. But you'll recall what we had been talking about so much at the beginning of Nehemiah was the fact that the wall needed to be rebuilt. And how many days did it take? They put their hands to the work. They had a mind to work. And in 52 days, they had built the wall. And the adversaries didn't slow them down. And um, they, would, they would let nothing come between them and, and completing this wall. Well, this is... Um, this is a significant occasion, and it calls for rejoicing. It calls for, calls for celebration. Um, and so what we see here is in verse 27, the time for the celebration is now. Let's plan it. Let's make it happen. Verse 27. Now, at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from all their places to bring them to Jerusalem so that they might celebrate the dedication with gladness, with, song, with hymns of thanksgiving, and with songs to the accompaniment of cymbals, harps, and lyres. So the sons of the singers were assembled from the district around Jerusalem and from the villages of the uh, Netophathites, from Beth Gilgal, and from their fields in Geba and Asmava. And the singers had built themselves villages around Jerusalem. They've come, and there are many of them. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves. They also purified the people, the gates, in the wall. And um, in verse 31, Nehemiah arranges the proceedings in a, 
in an orderly way. Then I had the leaders of Judah come up on top of the wall, and I appointed not one, but two great choirs. The first proceeding to the right, and then um, verse 38, the second uh, proceeding to the left. Verse 40, it's time. Then the two choirs took their stand in the house of God. So did I, and half of the officials with me, and the priests, and a number of others. Um, and then in the middle of verse 43, uh, 42, and the singers sang with Jezrehiah, their leader. And listen to verse 43. And on that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced, because God had given them great joy. Even the women and children rejoiced, so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. Praise be to God for giving them this great joy. They didn't take the credit for themselves in all the work that they had done. The credit was to the Lord, and He was the one and the source of their joy. Read with me Psalm 122 and see if we can see some of the, um, the thoughts of Nehemiah 12 therein. Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem that is built as a city is, that is compact together, to which the tribes go up, even the tribes of the Lord, an ordinance for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. For their thrones were set for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. May peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say, may peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Putting Nehemiah 12 with Psalm 122 with new covenant principles. What we see is a great joy that is experienced and a celebration for being um, within the gates of the city and in the house of God. That's all we'll say for uh, chapter 12. And we'll come to chapter 13 so that we can at least say a few words about it and um, perhaps even be able to have a brief review of some of the things we've, we've seen so far. In verse uh, 1 of chapter 13, what you see is a very simple reading. And um, after that, uh, an admirable, or you might say simple, although it may not have been, uh, a very simple correction. Simple reading, simple correction. On that day they read aloud from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And there was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water, but instead hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. That's a, uh, an interesting footnote. So it came about that when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. Um, just notice here, it's... It's stated in such a simple fashion. The people heard the word of the Lord and they made the correction that was needed. They, they just did it. 
And that's, that's a refreshing thing to see because, well, I know myself, and I don't know you that well, but I can just suppose that if you're anything like me, when the correction is needed, I'm likely to drag my feet on it and likely to be um, slack in, in just making the correction. Um, but these, these were not that way, and um, they, they are to be commended for this. When they heard the law, they obeyed the words of the law. Um, so um, how that was carried out may not have been as simple as it's stated, but they made it simple just by determining, as in their signed document, that they were going to follow the word of the Lord. And so there's nothing left to do but to do it. Um, and that's what we see here. In verses 4 through 9, there's an eviction. That's what you see there. Um, verse 4. Now prior to this, Eliashib the priest, now this is not good, who is appointed over the chambers of the house our God, being related to Tobiah. Who is Tobiah? Oh, right. <laughs> One of their chief enemies. Being related to Tobiah had prepared a large room for him. Where formerly they put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the utensils, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil prescribed for the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, and the contribution for the priests, now Tobiah gets that room. How can this be? And Nehemiah puts in a, a note that I chuckle about in verse 6. But during this time I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had gone to the king. After some time, however... I asked leave from the king, so he returns. And I came to Jerusalem and learned about the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. And it was very displeasing to me. So I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Then I gave an order, and they cleaned, uh, cleansed the rooms. And I returned there the utensils of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense as it should be. What you see in verses 4 through 9 is this. What is holy does not belong in the house of God. And it must be uh, taken out. We are the house of God. That's what Hebrews 3 verse 6 says. And there's no place for unholiness among us. 1 Peter, 1, or 1 Peter 2 verse 5. You also as living stones are being built up into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. <clears throat> to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through uh, Jesus Christ. This is in the context where he says, You will be holy, for I am holy. And so this house is holy. Holy to the Lord. There's a, uh, a personal aspect to this. And there's a collective aspect to this. Um, in terms of having the house of God uh, purifying it and making it, keeping it holy. As we said, there's a personal uh, aspect involved. In 1 Peter 1, verse 15, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you should be holy, for I am holy. Um, and there's also the collective aspect. I'll just recall for you in 1 Corinthians 5, there's a brother in sin. And the, the group is accepting this and acting like it's no big deal, no problem whatsoever. 
What did he say they should have done? They should have mourned instead. And at the end of that chapter, he concludes by saying, remove the wicked man from yourselves. So there's a collective way in which we purify the house of the Lord. And there's, there are other uh, aspects to that, but that's, that's all we'll say for now. In verses 10 through 14, uh, the summary of that is that because of neglect, <clears throat> what we'll see is uh, three things. A rebuke or a reprimand. We'll see a restoration. And we'll see a remembrance. Let's, let's read the, about the neglect. Verse 10, so he's, he's returned to Jerusalem. What else did he discover? Well, I discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. Well, this is not good. If the Levites can't, aren't supported, they can't carry out the work. Everyone's got to eat, right? Um, so, verse 10, that the Levites and the singers who performed the service had gone away, each to his own field. And so, again, we see that the worship is going to suffer. Verse 11, a rebuke or a reprimand. So I reprimanded the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? Then I gathered them together and restored them to their posts. A rebuke and um, a restoration to uh, correct what was uh, wrong here. All Judah then brought the tithe of the grain and wine and oil into the storehouses. So the Levites can be supported again. And put men in charge of them and, uh, and to distribute it to their kinsmen. In verse 14, one of Nehemiah's um, statements. Again, he asks, Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out my loyal deeds which I have performed for the house of, of my God and for its services. And... We know the character of God. We know that he sees his people and sees their good work and uh, rewards it. <clears throat> Coming down to verse 15. What you see here is the needless, heedless uh, breaking of the Sabbath. In those days I saw in Judah some who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath. This seems wholly unnecessary. Um, and bringing in sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys, as well as wine, grapes, figs, all kinds of loads. And they brought them into the Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So, something very similar to what we saw before. So I admonished them on the day they sold food. Also, the men of Tyre were, were living there, who imported fish and all kinds of merchandise and sold them to the sons of Judah on the Sabbath, even in Jerusalem. Then I reprimanded the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing you are doing by profaning the Sabbath day? And listen carefully to this. Did not your fathers do the same so that our God brought on us, on this city, all this trouble? You should have known what this causes. When we neglect the Sabbath and we neglect the Lord's ways, He will punish and you've just gotten back. You're just getting settled. And you're so soon forgetting the lesson of the Lord carrying you away. Um, and, 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 and breaking the city down. Yet you are adding to the wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Turn to Jeremiah uh, chapter 17. This speaks to what is being said here. It speaks to this thought that the Lord absolutely will be um, uh, furious about the people neglecting the Sabbath. It's very plain in the law that he intended them 
to keep the Sabbath and keep it holy. But listen to the words of Jeremiah exhorting them beforehand and being recalled by Nehemiah. uh, Jeremiah 17, verse 19. Thus the Lord said to me, Go and stand in the public gate through which the kings of Judah come in and go out, as well as in all the gates of Jerusalem. So this is where people can hear what's going to be said. And say to them, Listen to the word of the Lord, kings of Judah, and all Judah and all inhabitants of Jerusalem who come in through these gates. Oh, you people, oh, you merchants, you think you're going to be selling these things? Listen, take heed. Verse 22. Oh, uh, let's see. Verse 21. Thus says the Lord, take heed for yourselves and do not carry any load on the Sabbath day or bring anything in through the gates of Jerusalem. So we said... This is a needless breaking of the, of the Sabbath. They had been admonished ahead of time and told to take heed. And so it's a heedless breaking of the Sabbath. He says in verse 22, to, in case uh, verse 21 wasn't plain, And you shall not bring a load out of your houses on the Sabbath day, nor do any work. But keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your forefathers. Yet they did not listen or incline their ears, but stiffened their necks in order not to listen or take correction. Now, verse 24 speaks to Nehemiah's time. But it will come about. If you listen attentively to me, declares the Lord, to bring no load in through the gates of the city on the Sabbath day, but to keep the Sabbath day holy by doing no work in it, then... There will come in through the gates of this city kings and princes sitting on the throne of David, riding in chariots. Okay, so now we're harking forward to New Testament times as well. Riding in chariots on horses, they and their princes, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And the city will be inhabited forever. They'll be able to dwell in their place in the city. If they listen attentively, if they take heed, if they keep the Sabbath Verse 26, and they will come in from the cities of Judah and from the environs of Jerusalem, from the land of Benjamin, from the lowland, from the hill country, from the Negev, bringing burnt offerings, sacrifices, grain offerings, incense, and bringing sacrifices of thanksgiving to the house of the Lord. But if you do not listen to me to keep the Sabbath day holy by not carrying a load and coming in through the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I shall kindle a fire to its gates and it will... Devour the palaces of Jerusalem and not be quenched. Nehemiah knew the words of the law. He knew what the Lord had said about keeping the Sabbath holy. And Nehemiah had the words of Jeremiah and the warnings written on his heart, as we've been saying throughout. He knew what would come about if um, they profaned the Sabbath. And so he admonishes them saying, you know what is right, and you know the recourse if you do what is wrong. Uh, and in this, way he, um, in this way, he admonished them. And then in verse 23 through 31, what you see is uh, some more purifying that needed to take place of the people. What had happened? Well, in verse 23, in those days, I also saw... That the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And we think, surely not again. Surely we haven't uh, gone that way again. After all the work that God's prophets have been doing. After Ezra and all the work Ezra had done 
to separate uh, the people. And just to show just how much a disgrace this is, in verse 24, as for their children, half spoke in the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. So, verse 25, how does a godly man respond to sin in the camp? Well, Ezra tore his garments, tearing out, he's, he's mourning and weeping. That's how Ezra deals with it. Nehemiah has a, a bit of a different approach. They had had the gentle approach already. And Nehemiah um, was not this way. Verse 25, so I contended with them and cursed them. And struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God. This is just going back to what they had said, uh, what, two, three chapters ago. It says, we've taken a firm oath and we've taken on ourselves a curse that we were going to do the word of the Lord. And Nehemiah says, you're not doing it. And now you get the curse. May the Lord blast you off this land, whatever it might be. You're getting the curse. And I, I'm, I'm all for this. Except that you turn back from your sin. Cursed them and struck out their hair and made them swear. So there's the other part of it. Taking that oath. By God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take of their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. And then um, he reasons with them further to, to show that they should know the outcome of these things. And he says in verse 26, Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yes, he did. Yet among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. He says, A man as good as Solomon, as as holy to the Lord, and then what has he done? And he says, this, surely you're not going to go down that course. Surely you know what happened when, you did that, when he did that. So verse 27, do we then hear about you that you have committed all this great evil by acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? And then he says, even some of the priests were involved in this. So in verse 30, he purified them. Thus I purified them from everything foreign and appointed duties for the priests and the Levites, each in his task. So he's summarizing kind of his work, uh, apparently probably in the return to Jerusalem in the, during this time. There are a number of ways in which the people were impure and they were not keeping themselves holy to the Lord, not separating themselves from the peoples of the land, not keeping the Sabbath holy, and he is purifying them. And he arranged for all the supplies that were needed for the ongoing worship um, in the house of the Lord. And then what he says, finally, and we know it will have its fruit. He says, remember me, oh my God, for good. Let's think just quickly about what we um, need to say uh, about the, the foreign women and the, the people of the land. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 causes us to think about this by saying, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership, he, he, he reasons the same way, um, or in, in a similar way that Nehemiah does. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? 
Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Surely not. Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Name one thing. It's, or what has, agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of God, of the living God, just as God said. And now we return to um, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 37. I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And then listen to verse 17. Because what was true of the people in Nehemiah's day is true of us. He says we must therefore come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you. So being accepted by the Lord is going to be on the basis of our uh, keeping ourselves holy and, keep, and separating from what is unholy. I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. That's probably all we'll say about Nehemiah chapter 13. Let's uh, consider just briefly what we've seen and try to remind ourselves of the great lessons. This is a rich book and these are just a selection of, of lessons that I believe we've seen in this book. <clears throat> Godly people have God's word written on their hearts. Jeremiah 31 says that the new covenant people are not going to have to teach their each teach each other to know the Lord. They all know me and they, they his laws will be on their hearts. We won't expand on all of these for for sake of time, but godly people seek the welfare of God's people. They pray at all times, in all situations. They absolutely, certainly will have adversaries, enemies, opposition, and suffer persecution. Godly people lead others in godly paths. The, we probably didn't say enough about the character of Nehemiah as a leader, um, but his dedication to his own course in following the Lord and then causing the people to join behind him is tremendous. Godly people put their hands to the work and they're going to have a mind to work and they're going to be together in that. They trust in God's assurance of protection. And so no matter what they face, no matter what the threats are, our God is bigger than these things. The, the enemy is nothing. They're the chaff. They're, 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 they're nothing. Godly people carry the sword at all times. The sword that is um, for offense, the sword that is for defense, that will protect us from um, the attacks of the enemy. Godly people are indignant towards sin. When they see sin, they know that it needs to be rebuked and it needs to be corrected. Um, Nehemiah takes both parts. He rebukes them and he also um, reasons with them. So it's a, a gentle approach and a firm approach. Godly people defend the oppressed uh, with a bit of an asterisk there. But what God wants is his people to act justly and not to uh, act unfairly and especially to mistreat the, um, the little ones and the, the weak ones. Godly people, when they hear the words of the Lord, they repent and they amend their ways. In the face of adversity or threats, they do not fear. Going back to what we said about the trust Godly people are remembered for what they've done. The Lord records their work. Godly people tell of the works of God. They do this because it's so important for everyone to know who God is and what He does. 
and know his character. And they tell it to the next generation. They commend his deeds to the next generation so that we never have the case where a generation grows up not knowing the Lord our God. And godly people, as we've read here, receive an inheritance. That's just a very small selection. There's much more that we could have said um, as we were going through and much more we could say right now. Um, But I appreciate so much uh, your uh, good attention to God's Word and to your uh, patience uh, with my efforts in this. Hopefully, we've succeeded in doing what we intended, to read God's Word, to give the sense so it's, it's very clear what, we're, what we need to see from it and explain and, and all those things, what needs to be said. And I hope that's been uh, fruitful for you in at least a small way as it has been for me. We'll have an invitation.